So uh, this summer, um, our church has been going through a series on relationships. And in the past two weeks, uh, Susanna Atkins and uh, Pastor Brian have come to talk to us about spiritual abusers and how to recover from spiritual abuse. And you can catch these uh, really uplifting messages on our YouTube channel, so check it out. Uh, now, I'm going to continue sort of in that vein, uh, and we're heading kind of to places that few churches go today. Um, how do we actually handle an abuser in our midst? So, uh, we know from Scripture that um, small offenses can be overlooked, but more serious ones cannot. And as Pastor Brian said, in order to heal from the abuse, we need the Christian F word, forgiveness. So, um, Colossians 3.13 says, if one has a complaint against another, forgive each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Now, there are two parts to the Lord's forgiveness. The first part is when He forgives us without speaking to the people who sin against Him. Like when He forgave the soldiers who were nailing Him to the cross. And the second part of forgiveness is when a person actually owns and confesses their hurtfulness. And Jesus forgives. And there's an eternal relationship that's sort of manifested and sealed. And Jesus did this with the criminal who was with Him on another cross. So, the way that Jesus forgave the soldiers is without relationship. But the way that He forgave the criminal is within relationship. That second part of forgiveness, the part with confession, that's the part that deepens relationship. Uh, so, Colossians 3 calls us to forgive as Jesus forgave us. Part one, forgive the wrongs done to us in our own hearts and minds. And part two, talk to the person who might have offended us to make peace and to start rebuilding trust. But here's what we're facing. What if the offender doesn't want to talk to us? If he or she refuses? So the title of this sermon is Five Simple Words. But when we actually put these five simple words together, they can feel like this wall that we can't get over or around. And the five words are just this, tell it to the church. So this morning, um, I want to talk about why we should obey Jesus' teaching to tell it to the church. I want to talk about who is involved in doing that. And finally, how do we do it well? So anyone in our church community could make a bad decision and hurt someone. And then our church, we could make another bad decision if we decided not to pursue reconciliation in that. So if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to open them to Matthew 18, uh, the first book of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 18. And I'm just going to start reading in verse uh, 15. Matthew 18, starting in verse 15. If your brother sins against you, Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you 
that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So this little passage here is what I'd call a treasure map from Jesus, who is teaching us how to be a healthier church. And we might not be very familiar with the map, so we'll miss out on some of the treasure. And I want us to pick up the map today and take a fresh look. It might not exactly feel like a treasure hunt, but you know, anything that we discover from Jesus, anything that we get from Jesus, is probably worth more than gold, even more than Bitcoin. Now, if you've been part of a church for very long, you've probably been offended, and you've probably offended others. I know I have offended people, uh, even here in this church family, and people here have offended me many times. It happens. So um, I'm going to make up a completely hypothetical situation right now, okay? Let's say that uh, Lisa gave me a call time earlier this week, and I missed it. I was late. I stumble into the building without a steady walk. I didn't stand up with you when most of you stood. And when you were all seated, that's when I stood up. I was being distracting. And the people who were sitting close to me in the front, they either suspect that maybe I've been drinking or maybe I haven't showered in a while. And then when it's my time to come up here, it turns out I've fallen asleep. Lisa has to go and wake me up. And when she goes to get me up, she realizes I've made a puddle on the floor. Okay. So that's my, again, completely hypothetical, hopefully, situation. Uh, but what would the church do? What should the church do if something like this happened? I think the little one might have an answer for us. Okay. Well, I- I'm pretty sure this is what would happen after, you know, being um, at the church for 20 years now. Um, I- I'm sure that some of our church leaders and staff would get together and, you know, discuss what they could do. And they would definitely get together with me, and they would ask me, how can we lovingly help you? And um, the elders and the staff would also probably try to prevent distractions like this in the future. So it's likely, if we had all of these healthy conversations, that we wouldn't have to tell the whole church about this, because I would have had good conversations with the elders, what's happening in my life at the moment. We'd set up healthier boundaries for the future of what I should do and what I shouldn't do if I'm going to join the church again on future Sundays. And I'm very confident that our church, this church, would want me to join again. But we would probably have to tell it to the church if leaders tried to engage me multiple times and I refused them. So in that case, the elders might have to call a meeting of the members. Um, They would share the facts and evidence needed to make a decision, but only the information necessary to better protect me, to minimize gossip, and to avoid others from stumbling. 
and I would be invited to come to this meeting too. Then the elders would ask the members after listening, they would ask the members to decide if the church should treat me like an outsider, hoping it would only be in effect for a short time. So these five words are actually not easy to do. It's not easy for a church to do this. And in general, you know, I don't think discipline increases anyone's happiness in the short term. But it does in the longer term. We just can be distracted by short-term challenges. So what does this text mean in Matthew 18? Uh, I want to look at the last part, verse 17 again. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, one thing I want us to notice is what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't say, tell it to the elders. This is too big of a decision for the elders to handle alone. It needs to involve all the members of the church. And you might be wondering, why is Jesus throwing Gentiles and people who work for the Internal Revenue Service under the bus? So, Jesus here is speaking to his disciples, who at the time they were living under Mosaic law, which included certain boundaries. So we talked about the new covenant in his blood uh, and being fulfilled in communion, but that hadn't happened yet. So these boundaries, uh, and they had ritual cleansing, and they had sacrifices for violations of these laws, okay? So I don't know if it's obvious to all of you, but I'm actually a Gentile. And, uh, you know, I, um, I eat bacon and shellfish occasionally. Um, if someone touched me, we could have shaken hands, we could have hugged, or if they touched my plate of non-kosher food, even if the plate had been washed clean, okay, they would be considered unclean under the books of Moses for touching me or my plate. And as a result of that, this person under the Mosaic law who had touched me, they would have to quarantine themselves from their family and their community until they had communed some Com, uh, completed some strenuous cleansing rituals. So the spiritual Jews of Jesus' day when he's speaking here, including his first disciples, they avoided coming into contact with Gentiles. Perhaps the way you and I might avoid coming into contact with someone who was carrying monkeypox. Now, as for the tax collectors, um, these were people who made some terrible decisions. Okay, They were Jews who decided to work for the occupying Roman Empire. They were collecting money from their fellow countrymen for Rome. And they would collect extra for themselves. And tax collectors were able to live these lives of luxury off the backs of their neighbors. So they were traitors, swindlers, cheats, resented by their community. And I want to be clear that Jesus came to rescue everyone, even hated tax collectors. We're reading from the Gospel of Matthew, and Matthew was one of Jesus' closest disciples, but before Jesus called him, he was one of these hated tax collectors. So Jesus did come to rescue Jews and Gentiles alike. It becomes clearer in the New Testament. You know, there's one, um, there's one story where um, Jesus meets an occupying Roman soldier, 
and he says, I haven't found anyone in all of Israel with the faith of this soldier. So, uh, when Jesus makes this remark about Gentiles and tax collectors, it's really important for us to understand its context and who the listeners were. So, what do we need to do given this text? Uh, well, basically, the church needs to act uh, and decide in a unified way. Treating someone like a Gentile and tax collector means we need to treat them as a distrusted outsider. There are several aspects to this that we find throughout the New Testament. So um, the treatment can range from removing them from us physically, not to even eat with this person, having nothing to do with them, and even handing them over to Satan. Very strident language. So why do we need to do it? Well, the first reason we need to do it is for the person who has offended and doesn't want to engage in reconciliation. So what if we had a serial abuser in our midst, a wolf seeking sheep to devour? Would we do nothing? Would we do something based on, you know, worldly patterns, maybe from our favorite book or a favorite movie? Or would we do what Jesus teaches us here? Filtering out such an offender, treating them as an outsider, actually benefits them, even if it doesn't feel that way to any of us. Um, it's stressful, but not all stress is bad. In order to gain strong bones and muscles, um, they have to be stressed. Someone who avoids the stress of exercise, they become weaker. The same thing happens to churches who are afraid to hand a person over to Satan. As Paul handed over Alexander, so that Alexander might be saved in the day of the Lord, which you can read about in 1 Timothy chapter 1. When we've tried reasoning with an offender and given them many chances, but they still refuse to listen, the best course is to hand them over to Satan in the short term so that they eventually return to God. Now, another reason that we should do this is for the health of the church. Uh, removing an abuser also improves the health of the church. If we practice Matthew 18 consistently, the dangers of sin could be seen more clearly by us. And Paul uses this analogy of yeast for the spreading of sin. He says just a little bit of yeast can work its way through the whole loaf. And Paul exhorts the church to keep the Passover feast, not with the yeast of malice and wickedness, but bread without yeast of sincerity and truth. When I was preparing for today, uh, cancel culture crossed my mind. It's a relatively new term, and it involves the mass shunning of people. And um, based on what I've seen of it, the targets tend to be people with some special privilege or status, like a celebrity or someone with tenure. And cancel culture is enabled by social media, which is why it's more of a recent thing. Uh, cancel culture doesn't feel Christian to me because it doesn't feel loving, it doesn't feel like it can be reversed. It feels like um, internet mob justice. And you know, sometimes the mob can be right, but mobs are about passion, not love. So what Jesus is calling us to do here in Matthew 18 isn't cancel culture. I call it quarantine culture because Matthew 18 is about loving over shunning, and it's about 
confrontation over avoidance. So reversals, second chances, these don't seem to be a part of cancel culture, but these are the motivations of tell it to the church. We need to remember if we decide to treat someone as an outsider that Jesus has come to rescue people even worse, and we want any of our decisions to be temporary, that each and every outsider would return to God and be reconciled with the church. Uh, Finally, we need to do this for God. Uh, Filtering out a person from us who needs filtering, that honors God. We demonstrate our love for God when we keep His commands. And, you know, think back to when we sang about being unfulfilled without full communion. That's something that can actually draw us back to God. So why is it so hard for churches, not just this church, why is it so hard for churches to do this? Um, one thing that came to mind is we have a, cultural, uh, a culture of individualism. You know, you do you. Don't stick your nose into my business, and I won't stick my nose into yours. And a person who knows the Bible might quote something from Matthew 7, um, when Jesus said, Judge not, that ye be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Then this is true and very important. Jesus is addressing hypocrisy, judging others by a standard that we don't live by, and it's a big turnoff. You know, one of the things that the world will say when they struggle with God and um, turning to Him is, well, we see Christians carrying on all the time without love. That's a big turnoff. And While Matthew 7 is a warning against hypocrisy, what it's not is a prohibition against discipline and its consequences, okay? So another thing that might keep us from this is uh, we actually fear discipline. But we all know that individuals need discipline to grow, grow, and and so does the church. The, The word discipline might have these negative connotations for us, like an authority figure taking away our happiness, but it's essential to health. We know this from life experience. We need discipline in how we eat. Uh, We need it for productivity at school, at work. Uh, We need discipline in money, how to save, how to spend, how to invest, and how to give generously. And without discipline, a person's going to have a lot of problems, some of which will impact others. We might not even want discipline for ourselves right now, but we will definitely want it on others. Uh, say, the person who is driving our car or flying our plane. I don't know of anyone who says, it doesn't matter if this person is alert, well-rested, insured, licensed. Um, It doesn't matter if they have an addiction or if they're impaired. Of course, discipline matters. We care about it quite a lot, at least in the people in whom we put our trust. So when Susanna and Brian were talking to us about spiritual abusers, they clearly laid out a problem. And Matthew 18 is the way we deal with this problem. Abdication doesn't make it go away. It only makes it worse. Now, we all need second chances. Matthew 18 talks about that, even third chances. Uh, And Jesus, he models this by giving us the greatest second chance that we will ever be offered. But ultimately, too many chances enables I think one of my first experiences with discipline was potty training. 
I needed a lot of chances. Um, it felt unnatural to stop wearing diapers, which I had been wearing all my life, and start using the commode. But, you know, we don't find our best life with an unlimited supply of chances. And I don't know if you've ever potty trained or potty trained someone else, but there's a lot of joy in that. Uh, celebration in, in that training. And um, that can happen with all kinds of discipline. Um, I want to go back to something that Brian talked about last week, uh, the Christian F word, forgiveness. Um, he said in order to do this well, uh, we have to find distance and space. Uh, we need exploration and empathy. We need to name the offense and share it. Uh, there are consequences and rituals around forgiveness. And there are boundaries and practice. So tell it to the church involves all of these elements. Forgiveness requires discipline. Uh, when there's been a sin or offense against us, we start with private action. And if that doesn't work, we try to involve a couple others. But if that doesn't work, we need to take action as a church. So I want to talk a little bit about this tension between love and judgment. Um, and I'd say a few things about it. You know, we're called to love more than to judge. And we need to be careful that our judgment comes from love and is restrained by love. We can be guilty of too much judgment or not enough, but we can't be guilty of too much love. We should judge conditionally and yet love unconditionally. We're called to judge sometimes. We're called to love always. In Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells several parables. Uh, one of them is about a lost sheep. Now, the sheep's owner leaves the other 99 sheep that he has in open country to go and look for the lost sheep. And uh, Jesus says that the joy in finding this lost sheep is analogous to um, heaven's joy when one sinner repents. Then Jesus follows this with a different story, this time about a father whose son makes a terrible decision. In this parable, the father does not go after the son. He waits for the son to realize that he made a bad decision and only then welcomes his son home. Now, the same can be true for handling offenses. Many times the offenses are small, we're able to overlook it, or we're able to sit down with the other person and win them in a conversation. And we can pursue them like the sheep's owner. But in other cases, the offender can have malicious intent or a hard-heartedness not to engage with other insiders in the church. They won't engage in biblical peacemaking. In these cases, like the father who had the prodigal son, the church needs to let them go, to treat them as outsider, until the offender realizes the bad decisions they made. Paul gives us a list of wrongdoings that require discipline in 1 Corinthians 5. So I'm going to be reading starting from verse 11. I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not to even eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? 
God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Okay, so I brought a couple of items from home to illustrate this point. Okay. Um, this is a water pitcher. It's got a filter in it. And uh, it's a little overkill for New York City because New York City water is actually really good compared to other parts of the world. Um, but what this filter does is it removes chlorine from the water. Um, I'm grateful that the department puts a little chlorine in there because it kills bacteria and parasites, viruses. But it's nice to take it out, the chlorine out too, because you know our bodies don't need it and it doesn't taste that good. Okay, but this is a different type of filter. And uh, you can just you know, screw it onto uh, just like a standard bottle top. And this filter does not remove chlorine. It has a special membrane that filters out bacteria and parasites. And uh, I don't use this filter in my kitchen. It's with my camping stuff. Um, and it's for water that you might retrieve from a lake, a river, or even a dirty brown puddle. So when we have an offense in the church and it's small, uh, we can take more of a kitchen approach. We can choose to overlook the sin, or uh, we can talk to the person one-on-one -on -one and uh, be able to reconcile, that they would ask for forgiveness confess what they did, and our relationship could even be stronger. Um, but if the offense is big and the person refuses many efforts to reconcile, then we have to go for a different filter. Parasites and bacteria threaten the health of the body much more than a little chlorine does. So the steps we take in peacemaking depend on the conditions of the situation just as the filter that I use depends on the conditions of the water. So deciding to treat someone who claims to follow Jesus as an outsider, it's like moving from the wa uh, water pitcher to the camping filter. Now, we don't need to decide to treat outsiders like outsiders. They're already outsiders. We can actually go ahead and eat with them, point them to Jesus. We don't expect an outsider of church to understand what's happening inside the church and the unity that we're trying to achieve. But what about that insider who's an abuser? The word reviler, it means verbal abuser. I'd be a reviler if I con continually slandered other people in the church. And besides verbal abusers, you know, there are a lot of other abusers out there, sexual abusers, physical abusers, spiritual abusers. And some of these people will find their way inside churches. So what the Bible calls us to do is not even to eat with this person. Telling it to the church isn't just discipline for them, it's also discipline for the church to follow through on the church decision. Discipline doesn't work when it's inconsistent. Um, there could be a preschool teacher or a guardian um, giving a child time out because maybe they pinched or bit a classmate. Another hypothetical situation, I guess. Um, but this preschooler will fail to learn if another guardian or teacher comes and just cancels the timeout. So the church needs to be unified in discipline, which requires discipline of us. 
Okay, so this is what we've covered. Why should we obey Jesus in telling it to the church? Uh, it's because individuals need discipline to grow, and so does the church. And who is involved in tell it to the church? Well, the entire church, especially all the members. And what does tell it to the church look like done well? It's not about getting even. It's about getting through to a person. So I'll ask the worship team to come back up at this time. And while they're making their way, um, I want to make one thing crystal clear. I don't know if anyone right now uh, who we need to treat like an outsider, okay? Um, there may have been a few in the past, but those opportunities to obey are now behind us. Okay, this message is actually about our future. If an abuser needs to be treated like an outsider, will we be able to do it and do it well? And my question for those here who are following Jesus is, are you ready to follow Jesus in this? Telling it to the church. And for people who are interested in Jesus' teaching, um, I had some final questions. Is discipline different from punishment? Does discipline lead to healthier groups? Is discipline synonymous with love? We can be that church that tells it to the church, and we can do it for love. We can be sure because Jesus is love. These are His ways, and His ways are the treasure map. Sometimes for us to love requires a tough decision. Sometimes saying no is the most loving thing we can do. A no today from the church will hopefully lead to a yes from the individual in the day of the Lord. Let's continue to worship.